It is another blessed opportunity we've each been given to assemble as we are this evening to appreciate this 5.30 hour on Sunday as a second opportunity on the first day of the week wherein we at the Pippin Congregation not only offer our worship unto God, but we certainly encourage one another, we edify and lift up one another, and we're thankful certainly for the presence of each and every individual this afternoon. You may suppose that the sermon will be over in a couple of minutes. If it's the silent years, how much is there to say? What might be said about this? Well, I hope that as I develop the idea concerning that, that we each will be somewhat encouraged and perhaps be in a better position as we address certain features of the New Testament. In fact, to begin, there will be a few moments required on my part, I think, to put that title into its perspective. But it will basically be my effort to do so like this. As you and I give thought to the Word of God, the 66 books are, of course, divided into two portions, the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament ones. But isn't it interesting, as you and I end the book of Malachi, which is the last of the Old Testament books, you and I might appreciate then that the coming to Matthew is such that there's a significant amount of time that elapsed between the writing of the book of Malachi and the writing, or at least the events described in the book of Matthew. In fact, to be a little bit more careful about that, Malachi, of course, was the last of the prophets of the Old Testament in the following sense. Not only is that book the last book of the Old Testament, it's also the book that was written last in time. Malachi labored in such a way in time that that book was written about the year 435 B.C., that means approximately 435 years prior to the birth of the Master, the book of Malachi was written. Now the fact is, as you and I come to the book of Matthew, the New Testament, that book, you see, begins by describing John the Baptist, and he labored slightly before Jesus. But as you and I give thought to the life and times of the early chapters of the book of Matthew, you realize that approximately 400 years elapsed between the writing of the book of Malachi and the events described first in the book of Matthew. Question, what happened in those 400 years? Why didn't God arrange things in such a way that Matthew followed almost immediately the days of, of Malachi? Our great God saw fit by the manifestation of time and the development of issues concerning prophets and otherwise, there was a gap. Maybe that's not the best choice of words on my part, but at least an interval of time between the writing of, Ma of Malachi, the last Old Testament book, and the writing of Matthew, the first one occurring in our New Testament. What happened in those intervening years? May I be quick to say that particular period of time is the one that many will describe as the silent years, and you probably can see why. No Bible book, no inspired Bible book, relates to that period of time. May I be quick to say there are some apocryphal books, and on occasion you may find various Bibles that have those books in them. However, there's no instance or at least no evidence that any of them are inspired. And therefore you and I again will appreciate 400 years of silence. What happened in them? I'll not be able to develop all of it in the lesson tonight. Time won't quite permit that. But there are many New Testament verses, many New Testament events, 
many New Testament circumstances that themselves find the background for them in the details occurring in the 400 silent years. So that may be some sermons coming a little bit further on down the road. But at least for tonight, let's give a broad appreciation, a broad overview, if you please, of some of the things that might be said about those 400 silent years. The first thing that I might highlight is point number one, which I've identified this way. The Lord's first coming. Now you and I, as I noted just a moment ago, John the Baptist came as the forerunner of the Christ, the one who is to prepare the way in the words of Mark chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. And in so doing, we might be quick to observe the following. This is another element that you and I should recollect as we ponder, why did the Lord come when He did? I know perhaps all of us have wrestled with that concept. Why didn't Jesus come a thousand years before He did? Why didn't He come basically at the life and times of David? Why didn't He come 500 years after the time that He did? Doesn't it seem appropriate to note in the words of Galatians 4 verse 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. That phrase, fullness of time, is the one that I have invited you to consider with me near the top of that slide. That word fullness, you see, identifies a completeness. It identifies, in essence, an element of being the right time. In the infinite wisdom of the God of heaven... It was, let's say, put into place in such a way that there was a particular time when Jesus was to be born and a time that He was to die. It could not have happened a thousand years earlier. It could not have happened 500 years later. It happened precisely at the time that was suited to the Lord carrying out His mission in the way that would be pleasing to the God of heaven and be the benefit to the human family that would be intended what would make that the right time? Now, may I offer to you the thought that those 400 silent years, in fact, are going to have a part to play in some of our observations this evening. One more thing about that opening thought. Don't you find it interesting that later in Romans 5, 6, Paul would also use a phraseology that would point out that in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Due time? Due time. That phrase indicated, you see, it was the proper, the appointed, the set time at which that event was to, to occur. You and I might then note that in the spring of AD 30, when Jesus was put to death there on the cross, that time and that event at the Passover of that year was the right time. All the events prior to it, to some extent, had been looking toward the grandeur of that event and the marvel that was to transpire in it. And by the same token, how much since then has been built upon it? But it is with that to be noted. Let's come to the second observation. Point number two in tonight's lesson. Remember, we're giving thought to the 400 silent years. What are some things that happen near the close of the Old Testament events? Now, although the Old Testament does highlight this for us, so technically, this part doesn't fall in the 400 silent years. But there is something to be noted about the events following this in the 400 silent years. Let me build it up this way. 
you and I know well that in the Old Testament, God's people sadly and tragically and disobediently were given to idolatry. They often would worship Molech or Chemosh or one of the other gods of the Old Testament era such as Baal. And time in time again, you and I read about prophets who would address them in the name of the God of heaven and urge them to repent and to stop trying to serve these other supposed gods because there is no other God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me in the words of Exodus 20 verses 1 to 5 because you and I realize all of these were the figments of men's imaginations. That leads me to note this. So as you and I have observed, God's people had a problem with idolatry. You and I recall, they went into Babylonian captivity because of it. God said, because you've rejected me, I will turn my back upon you, 2 Chronicles 36. And so into Babylonian captivity, they went for 70 years. Now this observation. Have you ever thought about what transpired concerning those people after they came back from captivity? The period of captivity ended. By the blessing of God, they were allowed to return to the land of Judea. And of course, many of them did. Not all of them, but many. Those that returned, were they ever again as apt to become idolatrous as they had been before? As far as the record of the 400 silent years goes, never again were they as guilty, as tempted, as likely to become those guilty of idolatry. It seems as if they had learned a lesson. It seems as if that had been implanted in their thinking in such a way they at least did not fall to that kind of sin as prevalently as they had before. I've asked you to notice one of the last points on point number two. How that? Idolatry is specifically mentioned in 2 Chronicles 34 as well as Jeremiah as one of the key reasons for the captivity. This next part then will simply have to be my observation to you. In the records of the 400 silent years, which admittedly are not biblical, you and I do not find nearly the likelihood of idolatry, as had been the case before, they learned a lesson, and in that regard were at least closer to the God of heaven. But that's only the beginning. What about lesson number three? There might be something else you would be quick to observe. May I ask you to contemplate the synagogue? You and I read about them all over the New Testament. In fact, the book of Matthew begins by making mention of them, and hence... You and I notice that Paul frequented the synagogues as he, in fact, would come to a given city. He would preach first at the synagogue, attempting to convert those that were Jewish, and only then did he make his way to the preaching in the Gentile areas. But that immediately begs a rather potent question. We read about these synagogues in the New Testament, but we do not read about them in the Old Testament. I say that with only one possible exception. There is a word in Psalm 74 that makes reference, I believe it's verse 8 of that chapter, to a synagogue. But if you read that, you'll observe it is not the consideration connected to what we see in them in the New Testament. 
it seems as if that Old Testament reference, if indeed that be one, is merely a type of what would one day be from that perspective. Question, where did the synagogues come from? They weren't in the Old Testament. They're all over the New. Doesn't that highlight apparently the fact that they appeared in the 400 silent years? Somehow they came about then. A very brief development at the, at the top of that slide then would be this. As you and I revisit passages such as 2 Kings 25.9, that chapter records for us that fateful event in which the Babylonians overran Jerusalem, destroyed it in 586 B.C. As they did, they burned the temple. That immaculate temple that Solomon had constructed, that ornate that very extravagant temple filled with gold and silver and, and various other precious metals. The Babylonians not only ransacked it, they hauled off those precious vessels off to Babylon. And they burned the temple that was left behind. Now the temple was the place wherein God had placed His name. That was the place the Jews were supposed to come and worship. It was where they offered their sacrifices. It was where they burned incense. It was where, of course, the Ark of the Covenant was located. Once that temple was burned, you and I might then ask ourselves the question, where did a faithful Jew worship then? You couldn't go to the temple. It wasn't there anymore. By now, you've probably begun to appreciate this. That's when the synagogues arose. Scattered all across the various empires at that time, faithful Jews, wherever they lived, they would thus construct these places of worship. Now, they would be quick to admit that it was not the exact thing that took place at the temple. They didn't have Arks of the Covenant at every one of these synagogues. They didn't have, you see, the various other elements that were present only there, but it was a place wherein they were apt to assemble for the aspect of worship. These synagogues thus arose in Babylonian areas, Persian areas, Grecian areas, other areas, you see, all during the period of the 400 years. At the very least, could I remind each of us that that does highlight the significance of worship. Now, clearly, they took the liberty and took the incentive and they took the consideration to put in place a given location wherein they might offer the rightful worship to the God of heaven. That surely would encourage you and me to look upon worship as we ought. But as you and I close that top slide, the, close, the top part of it, I've asked you to notice again just a sampling of the large number of New Testament references that have this idea as its background. The book of Acts, again, makes such frequent mention of the reality of these synagogues. Let's come to the fourth point. So now we've learned the synagogues were a place, and isn't it impressive, that the New Testament preachers, like Paul and others, they would make appropriate use of these synagogues. The book of Acts frequently mentions Paul entering a synagogue, and he didn't preach just old law of Moses. He preached Jesus. 
So in every place, or at least in many of the places that Paul would come on his missionary journeys, he would already find a place of establishment with Jews gathered that he could preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. As he did that, on occasion he found a receptive audience, and the gospel could get at least a hold in these new and wonderful areas. How about point four? The issue of language. I suppose language is probably something that we don't think that much about. We get up in the morning, and we go about our day speaking English. We share ideas and thoughts and considerations with others. They ask questions of us, and we ask questions of them. We share information and maybe give no thought to the language we've used. But on this fourth point, there is something to be rather carefully noted. In fact, there will be two sub-ideas really to this one. It will begin like this. As you and I study the book of Daniel, we find that God foretold there was to be, after the empire of Babylon, the Medo-Persian empire. And after it was to be the Greek empire. And after it was to be, you see, the Roman empire. In the days of the Greek empire... You perhaps have heard of Alexander the Great. He was surely one of the most successful kings of the ancient era. In fact, he conquered the entirety of the known world at the time. You might want to listen to that again. The Greek Empire stretched on the east from what we would today recognize as rather far east in the Mediterranean area all the way to the current modern-day nation of India in the east. That's a vast area to be overseen, and he didn't have airplanes or cars or trains or ships or missiles or anything that would allow a ready and quick appreciation of that vast land area. And yet Grecian troops watched over it. But Alexander the Great wasn't just about conquering territories. He wanted to establish in those territories what he considered the finest civilization on earth the Greek civilization. So it was not merely his intent to conquer the territories. He wanted to put Greek civilization there, including Greek language. And so he sought a great opportunity to establish the Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture, as it's often called, in all of these areas. And so one byproduct of that was this. People everywhere could speak the same language. It happened to be Greek, admittedly. But here, one more time, was a rather ready appreciation. Wherever the gospel preachers of the New Testament went, they could come to any location in Rome, any location in other places far more east of there, and they could speak Greek, and everybody would immediately be able to understand the occurrence of the Greek language. And if you would, think for just a moment about the language in which the New Testament was written. It was written in Greek. Now, it's not classical Greek, admittedly. It's Koine Greek. And yet, that's the common Greek that everybody could appreciate. And so immediately, you and I can see a dramatic blessing. The gospel, the time was right. Jesus came at the right time. And the gospel, based upon His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, could then be preached and everybody could understand. Maybe we're in a position to see that although at the Tower of Babel, there had been people who then were endowed with all kinds of different languages. There was now a universal language. 
and people could understand it. What a blessing it was. The second point, in addition to the language per se that was spoken, is what about the written translation? You and I perhaps are already aware the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew. But I just said that Greek was the language that Alexander the Great spread all over the place. The translation of the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew into Greek is known as the Septuagint. You've probably heard about that language, or at least that naming. It was commissioned at the right time, about 250 B.C. And in so doing, the Egyptian king who commissioned it brought 70 scholars to the city of Alexandria. And over a period of a little less than two months, they labored powerfully, continuously, and successfully to translate those Hebrew Scriptures into Greek because that's now what everyone could understand. And upon completion of it, that translation is one that Jesus frequently quoted from. The other New Testament writers quick, frequently quoted from it. It's the Septuagint. I hope all of us have an appreciation of the manifold change and the blessing that was brought about by that translation. Now, admittedly, you and I don't speak Greek, and so even if we had a Septuagint translation, we probably wouldn't have much success reading it. But may I say, it paved the way in a dramatic way for translations that were to follow, including some of those that would ultimately make their way into English. How about point number five? In addition to the matter of language, what about philosophy? Now you may immediately ponder, what significance would philosophy have? Maybe I can describe it like this. You and I know that philosophy is certainly something that sometimes is not all that interesting. It can be an issue in which folks, it seems, can speak about a rather large number of tangent ideas. But in connection to this idea, it's very potent and very interesting. It begins on the slide, In the golden age of Grecian culture, there was much to be said about philosophy. It was lifted high as perhaps the most worthwhile element of discussion, and thought. There were people who would give themselves to philosophical discussions and ideas. Some of these next names will be those that you probably are aware of. Various individuals rose during that time and they would have certain philosophies that they'd preach and they would encourage. One of them goes like this, Epicurus. That word occurs in part directly connected to the New Testament. In fact, you probably are aware of the, the appearances of names wherein Epicurean philosophy. Recall when Paul in the book of Acts makes reference to the Stoics and Epicureans? Well, you might have wondered, who is this Epicurus and what did he teach? Here's the philosophy he taught. If I could summarize it, it went like this. Live it up, you're soon going to die. In the words of Luke chapter 12, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what Epicurus taught. You go through life one time, live it up with all the gusto you've got. You could easily imagine that's a very fleshly and very selfish set of ideas. I'll do what satisfies me. 
I will partake in what satisfies me because I like it. Epicurus encouraged that kind of thinking. You and I know there's a lot of people in our world today who still feel that way. But that wasn't the only philosophy of that day and time. Look at another one. Socrates. Now, that name doesn't occur in the Bible, admittedly. But it is a name, you see, that our students in school are often encouraged to learn. Socrates was an ancient philosopher who encouraged this idea. You've got to think individually. You can't simply do it just because somebody else said you need to. You've got to consider the evidence for yourself and decide if this is the proper course of action. Think individually. How about another one? In addition to Socrates, what about Plato? You likely have heard that name. For Again, our students in school are asked to learn much about him. Plato said, think morally. It isn't enough just to think individually. You've got to decide, is this morally right? Is it ethically correct? Now, Plato had much to say, you see, about that set of ideas. Let's go ahead and look at the third one, then wrap all of that up like this. Aristotle. In many ways, he may be the best known of that group of three. Aristotle didn't just say you've got to think individually, and he didn't just say you have to think morally. He inserted the following, You must recognize there is truth. You have to think in light of the existence of truth. In a bit of a digression, I might be quick to say that Aristotle put in place some of the basic tenets of science that would hold sway for almost 2,000 years before anybody would challenge them, before anyone would take the liberty to say anything different. Aristotle was a powerful figure. Look at what the three things were. Think individually. Think morally. There is a truth. Now, if I might invite you to consider this, the New Testament develops all of them, but it applies it to the gospel and applies it to the matter of religion. Did you notice in Acts 2.36? That's the very passage that Caleb read earlier in our, in our time of service tonight. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Here was the day of Pentecost. And Peter and the others stand before that august group, and to them he says, Think individually, every one of you. Don't do something just because somebody else did it. If you're guilty of sin, and they all were, then you need to do something about it. There's an individual response. But not only that, note the moral character of this. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. You committed sin. You committed error. In the moral response to that, it's time for response. Thirdly, there's truth. The New Testament preaches in such a powerful way the reality and existence of truth religiously. Not just a truth in science, or not just a truth in some other walks of life. May I then point out that based upon some of the precepts that the human family had come to understand, the gospel ministration is built upon it. All of that came about in the 400 silent years. 
Now, with that in mind, let's close that slide like this. Point number six, engineering. Isn't it true that the time came to pass wherein might, much might be said about the reality of engineering? May I point out this? The Roman Empire, although it was described under the banner of the book of Daniel as that empire of clay mixed with iron, it didn't have the purity of the Babylonians. It didn't have the purity of the Grecians. But there was some other things about the Roman Empire that reached a higher level that had been true in the earlier ones. And one of them was engineering capability. You and I might say what we will about the Roman Empire, but they, in many ways, were masters of some elements in engineering. Though I have never been to Rome, some of you might have. The Roman Colosseum that was built over 2,000 years ago is partially still standing. You can visit it. It's a tourist attraction in Rome today. Something built over 2,000 years ago. That's some pretty impressive engineering. None of the buildings you and I are going to build today will be around 2,000 years from now. We can, rest, we can rest assured of that. I have one picture for you that I will invite you to consider. This is a sample of an aqueduct that the Roman engineers constructed. Now, Rome was a very populous city. It was a city whose population was well over a million people. You and I, from a practical standpoint, know well it'll take a lot of water to meet the needs of a million people. How did Rome bring all that water into the city? You and I today realize we're blessed with reservoirs not too far from here. Did Rome have such reservoirs? And if so, how'd they get that water into the city? Enough for a million people. That would require hundreds of thousands of gallons of water a day. How'd they get all that water to the city? That's one example. A Roman aqueduct is what it's called. Ultimately, 11 aqueduct systems were constructed. These, of course, would bring water sometimes dozens, if not hundreds of miles away and bring that water right into Rome. Now, needless to say, not all of them were above ground like that one. Many of them were underground water systems that they would convey water over these many miles to bring it to the actual city. My point is, in addition to their capacity in something like an aqueduct system, Rome had a great road system. Again, not only the engineering seen in their buildings, but also seen in their road systems. And so, in Acts 28, when the inspired Scriptures make reference to the Appian Way in Rome, some of those road systems are still in existence 2,000 years later. Might you and I be impressed how would that benefit the gospel? You and I now realize as the New Testament when Jesus would say, you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Mark 16, 16, the roadways were a quick and convenient and readily accessible way for missionaries to travel and for others, you see, to share and transport the message of truth. The Roman Empire had already built a wonderful road system that the Christians could then use. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? Point number seven. 
the idea of religious freedom. One of the things that you and I enjoy in America, at least at this time, is the blessedness connected to religious freedom. In fact, the First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees that Congress shall make no law respecting any particular religion. And at least over the time that our country's existed until recently, by and large, we were free to practice our religion in any way that we saw fit. Now, admittedly, in recent years, the federal government has begun by the court system to make various decisions that do infringe upon the practice of certain elements in religion. But I'd like you to transport in your mind back to the days of the 400 silent years and those days shortly after it. And how was that a blessing concerning the religious freedom that the Roman Empire encouraged? At the top of that slide, it goes like this. The Roman Empire itself was an empire that was also encouraging of religious freedom so long as you were not a threat to Rome. May I say again, so long as you did not directly offer a threat to Rome, the Roman Empire didn't care what religion you practiced or how you went about it. Do you recall that there were some times when there were those that would use that idea as an effort to trap Jesus. Do you recall on some occasions when they tried to make him a king and their only reason for doing that was to paint him as a threat to Rome? Now, of course, Jesus was never a threat to Rome. His church was never a threat to Rome. In fact, the church of the New Testament is that great discussion of Daniel chapter 2, that stone cut out without hands that was far greater than the image that Daniel saw. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. He said, If it were, my servants would fight. But Jesus had told Peter, Put up your sword. Maybe it is in that connection. Then the Roman Empire was not going to directly outlaw Christianity. That would not come till later. In those early years, the church could start, it could get founded, it could begin to grow and thrive, and Rome didn't care. It was only later when the Romans began to understand, or at least they were led to believe, that the church was a threat to them, but they began to persecute it. At the first, there was no persecution from Rome. The persecution came from the Jews. At that point, you and I can then be impressed. With that, another element of the 400 years. That religious freedom allowed the gospel an initial at least few decades wherein a great deal of success could be had. And Paul could say in Colossians 1.23, the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. Can you imagine the way in which the gospel thus had gone about under the banner of the freedom that the Roman Empire demanded? Point number eight. Having looked at the 400 silent years so far, now we come to point number eight. Religious groups. One more time, this one is much like the synagogues we noted earlier. At that time, I ask you to observe, you don't read about the synagogues in the Old Testament really, but yet they're all over the New Testament. The same thing could be said about this. You don't read about Pharisees in the Old Testament. Nowhere. 
You don't read about Sadducees in the Old Testament. Not a single time. But yet, as you come to the New Testament, we read about Pharisees and Sadducees. They're all over the place. From a rather early time in the book of Matthew, where did they come from? What was the reason? What was the circumstance that led to the establishment of these religious groups, such as Sadducees and Pharisees? Well, we clearly will need to be rather brief about this because much could be said about it. But I've tried to highlight just a couple of the main points. There were some religious groups who sought to remain loyal to that law of Moses. And you and I can imagine that as God had given the law of Moses, that was the law that was to remain in place until God removed it. And He hadn't removed it until, of course, the death of Christ and the establishment of the church. That means in those 400 silent years, the law of Moses was in force for those that were the children of Abraham through Jacob. Having said that, the second point on that is this. You and I remember that one of the matters of extreme significance was the high priest. Who was going to serve as the high priest? And you and I recall Aaron was the first high priest, the elder brother of Moses. And God had dictated that that high priesthood was to pass through the lineage of Aaron that had been told in, in Exodus chapter 28. It is with that in mind the following observation might be made. The group that you and I would know as the Sadducees were basically wealthy aristocrats. They were the ones who primarily had control of the Sanhedrin. And in so doing, they wielded a tremendous influence over the events that took place at the temple. They were the primary controlling group relative to that. But with that in mind, quickly note this. The Sadducees had some real theological trouble. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And they didn't believe in life after death, really. Think about that a moment. Here was a religious group who themselves didn't believe in these things. You might recall they were the very group that came before Jesus in Matthew 22 and said, they related this record. There was a man. He died without any children, so his brother married his wife, just as the Old Testament had indicated a Jew ought to do. But he died with no children. And that ultimately went through seven brothers, and they asked Jesus this question, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Because they all had her on earth. They thought, sure, they had the Lord trapped. You see, they didn't believe in a resurrection. Jesus was quick to say, you do greatly err not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. He told them they were wrong. This, this story, this event you've recorded to me, it has no bearing on your belief. And he immediately called to their attention the statement of Exodus 3. God is the God of the living, not the dead. You do greatly err. May I invite each of us then to notice there was a group known as the Sadducees that arose during that 400 years. They were the wealthy aristocrats. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. The rest of it was of no interest to them. Notice, they thus threw out the other 34 books of the Old Testament. Now that's a shame. And that's a problem. But what about the Pharisees? 
you may notice that they were more committed, you see, to respecting that law, and that even included some of the matters of the traditions that went with it. Now, quite frankly, you and I would far more identify with Pharisees. They took seriously what the law said. Now, you and I might note they had their problems. In Matthew 16, Jesus directly said, You make sure to do what they tell you to do, but don't do what they do. For you see, they, they were hypocrites. They taught one thing, but didn't live up to what they taught. But they did teach, by and large, correctly. Doesn't that encourage us? Then these groups arose during that time, and they're all over the New Testament. Paul said he was a Pharisee in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Here was that man that would become the great apostle Paul who was raised as a Pharisee. At this point, as we close that eighth point, maybe this is a good time to say many things more might be said about the 400 years that will have a bearing on certain verses in the New Testament. There are certain verses you and I will never understand if we aren't somewhat aware of the events that transpired in the 400 years. Now, there's much more history during that 400 years that might be shared, and I may well do that in a lesson somewhat soon so that we could reflect upon those events and then use them to shed some spotlight upon various verses in the New Testament, at least for tonight. These 400 years, I hope, have brought us to a point of conclusion that we might at least highlight like this. Although it might be described as silent years, they're not silent from the perspective of what happened during that time. It's just that no writing prophet recorded anything during that time. But the events that took place were rather monumental for some of the events that would occur in the New Testament. And so our understanding will depend upon much of what happened during that time. Tonight, this 400 years, I hope, has brought us to appreciate that listing at the bottom of the slide. Eight things that might be worthy of note about that period of time. This evening, as you and I reflect upon our devotion to the Lord, one of the things we're going to learn about that 400 years is there were people who were committed, devoted, and dedicated to the Lord, even to the point where they risk their lives in continuance of faithfulness to the Lord. May I say tonight that God asks us to be faithful as well. Be thou faithful unto death, He would say, and I'll give thee a crown of life, Revelation 2 verse 10. Tonight, if there's someone present in this assembly, that perhaps upon examination of your life, all isn't well because faithfulness hasn't been the order of the day. The Lord is begging you to come to your senses and in such a way that you'd respond in a faithful and positive way to Him. Tonight, if we could pray on your behalf, making acknowledgement of your confession and repentance, we'd be honored to do that. But if you would wish to become a Christian, the plan of salvation the Lord Himself taught was this, believe on Him, repent of your sins, confess His name, and then... Submit yourself to be baptized for the remission of your sins. It is a tremendous way to start all over. Once you're baptized in those waters, the blood of the Lord will wipe away all sin in terms of its guilt. You're able to come forth as a new creature in Christ in the words of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance, some help, some way of encouragement, we'd be honored and delighted to do it. 
while together we stand and while we sing the chosen song.